Revelation Church. Welcome. Special welcome to our guests and visitors. As we get started this morning, two quick things. One, I drank coffee on an empty stomach, so this could be the quickest message you've ever heard. <laughs> number two, we're going to be going through a number of scriptures. So I have the page numbers for the Pew Bibles, if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, or on your device, whatever you want to use. But we'll be working through those this morning. So now, as we get started, I want you to think about a time in which you bought tickets to go see a headliner or an athlete. Okay? So you're, the day is approaching, you're getting super excited, you're going to show up, and there's going to be your favorite band, your favorite athlete, maybe LeBron James, whoever it might be. On the day of the event, you arrive, only to find out the tour bus broke down or the athlete is benched. That's kind of like this morning. So with that, I need some prayer. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity in which we get to dive into your word and study together what you have for us, Lord. May your Holy Spirit speak this morning. May I minimize and become smaller and that your Holy Spirit would speak to the hearts of the people here. And Lord, we just give this time to you. Pray these things in your great name. Amen. So we're in the book of Colossians. And for the first two chapters, <clears throat> Paul has done a great job of laying out the doctrine of Christ. So chapter one, he's the head over all creation. Chapter two, it's Christ plus nothing. So Christ is all you need. There's no need for philosophy, legalism, angel worship, asceticism, or self-made religions. Christ is all you need. So now we get it into chapter three, which is more the practical side of it, the application. How do we go about that? If you've been here the last couple weeks, we've been going through the book of Matthew, looking at the life of Christ, and the varsity player, Zach Adams, went through the last chapter of chapter 11, talking about Jesus and rest. He said, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. So when you're dealing with the yoke, a yoke was used with the oxen. You pair up the oxen, have the yoke, and the smaller oxen could learn from the bigger oxen how to pull. So it was something in which they worked together. And that's the example that Christ is giving there in that he's asking us to take part in what he is doing and take rest and find peace in that. So I had a quote that kind of ties us into what we'll be covering today. It comes from this book, The Glorious Pursuit. It's actually the introduction by Dallas Willard. And it states, to take his yoke means joining him in his work, making our work his work. To trust him is to understand that total immersion is what he is doing with our life is the best thing that could ever happen to us. To learn from him in this total life immersion is how we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Matthew 6, 33. The outcome is that we increasingly are able to do all things, speaking or acting, as if Christ were doing them, Colossians 3, 17. 
As apprentices of Christ, we are not learning how to do some special religious activity, but how to live every moment of our lives from the reality of God's kingdom. I am learning how to live my actual life as Jesus would if he were me. So as we get into Colossians 3 here, we'll be looking at what the Christian life looks like and what we needed to do in order to take part in that life. So Alyssa and I, when we first got married, we moved to Moses Lake. And while we were there, we were looking for a church. And so we went to a church that was meeting in a small auditorium of an, in uh, an elementary school. I was dressed up in my band shirt, Beloved, if anybody knows who that is. And on the back, it said, Death to Traitors. And my wife had some uh, extra piercings. As we showed up, we noticed that we kind of stood out a little bit. The people there had, the men were in their suits, the women were in their dresses. There was a definite difference in appearance. But that's kind of what we're getting into here. And that's why I titled Everyday Church Clothes this series. It's talking about taking off the old self and putting on the new self. There's, I don't share that story in a way to condemn the church as far as what they're wearing. The idea behind that is that you're presenting God with your best, that there is something different about this activity that we're taking part in in church. There's a sense of reverence there. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But with that, you have the old self and you have the new self. So what is the old self? Go ahead and turn with me to uh, Romans 6.6. 6. It's on page 1001 in the Pew Bible. And it reads, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. So what do we know about the old self? The old self was crucified. It is gone, it is dead because of what Christ has done on the cross and we are no longer slaves to sin. So what about the new self? Go ahead and look at Ephesians 4. It's on page 1038 in the Pew Bible. chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. So we look at it. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. So the idea is that the old self, the junky, nasty clothes, Put those away. Take those off. That is your former life. They're corrupted with deceitful desires. The new self is created in God's likeness. Our end goal should be like Christ in righteousness and purity of truth. So today we'll be talking about the old self, those ratty old clothes. And then next week, 
Spencer will pick up and talk about the new clothes. So looking at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So the first thing there, seek the things above. So they're above. There's some sort of separation between us and the heavenlies. In our community groups, we've been going through Genesis. And I would encourage you that if you aren't part of a community group, please look into that. But this last week, we were going through Genesis 3, which is the fall. And ultimately, the separation was created from Adam and Eve wanting what they wanted. They desired something that God requested that they not take part in. And instead of relying on God, they went after what they ultimately wanted. So in order to to move into the next section, we'll go ahead and look at uh, verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So we're setting our mind on things above. We're thinking about things that relate to God. Practically speaking, let's go ahead and look at Romans 12.2. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So we have to renew our mind, discern God's will. How do we do that? We do that through a relationship with Him. And that requires an interaction with the Scriptures. We have to interact with our Bible. So looking at 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So in order to be about God's work, we have to have a renewal of our mind. And in order to do that, we have to study the scriptures. And that helps us build our relationship with Christ. Ultimately, it has to be grounded in the scriptures. The scriptures are our communication from God. So this should be our baseline. And if we're constantly seeking and setting our mind on the things above, then we'll be able to find out who God is, his character, his values, love, kindness, meekness, for example. But it's so easy to get distracted with everyday life. We have work, we have kids, we have school, whatever it might be, it's easy to get distracted with these things. And they're not inherently bad in themselves. It's just easy to get distracted. And I've actually heard it said that that's one of the best tools of 
Satan is to use the tools of distraction. But if we're in a position where we're setting our mind on things that are above, that plays out in all of that. So it's not just gonna go off into an island, go build a house in the woods, and live out my faith there. That's not what he's called us to do. So looking at Matthew 7, 7, it says, seek and you will find. So for those of you that have found God, reflect on those times that you have sought and found him. What was that like? He is in the things above. So you can take the confidence knowing that he is there and that he is knowable. And the believer has access to the things above. But our old self keeps getting in the way. So we have to figure out how to take that off, take that part off and move toward Christ. So as we look at verse three here, in Colossians three, it says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Okay, so the old self is dead, it's gone. There's no longer, you no longer have an issue with that. The issue that you have is your flesh and the evil desires that it creates. So as you look at this verse, it talks about being hidden in Christ. A couple thoughts on that. Being hidden in Christ, life is hidden from the unbeliever. It doesn't make sense. You seeking the things above, you're taking your head and putting it up in the things that are above, focusing on God, taking in the word, understanding it, learning knowledge through God's teachings. That's not gonna make sense to the unbeliever. The other part is that you are inseparably united with Christ. It's hard to distinguish the difference between you and Christ. I think of a time like my grandparents who have passed away or Alyssa's grandparents. They love each other. They have a strong, committed relationship. And when you interact with them, it's hard to distinguish the difference between the two of them. They're almost one person. And that's what this is calling us to, to be inseparably united with Christ. And I know that's kind of countercultural because we like to seek our dependence, our independence, sorry. Seek our independence. But Christ is ultimately calling us to a codependence with him. Take on that yoke that we talked about last week and share that with him. And what will we find? Go back to chapter two of Colossians verses two and three. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what will we find? We'll find Christ and in him are hidden treasures. So it's like a treasure hunt. We're seeking out the wisdom and knowledge of Christ when we bind ourselves to him. And ultimately, there will be a time when the spiritual connection that we currently have will become a physical connection. 
As we look at verse four of chapter three, it states, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So there is a time that you will appear with him in glory. Let's go ahead and turn over to Revelations 21. It's 11.03 in your pew Bible. Revelations 21, one through five. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, write, because these words are faithful and true. This is our hope, ladies and gentlemen, right here, that one day we will see our Christ face to face. I think of the old hymn of the veil rolling back and seeing Christ face to face. What a great and wonderful day that will be. Can I get an amen? All right. (laughs) So ultimately, the separation is restored. We become what we were called to be. What a glorious day that will be. You can tell it gets me a little excited. So that's our glorification. That's kind of a big word, but truly like Christ, we will be seeking all hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But what about now? What do we have now? There's this weird, awkward in-between time in which we see the brokenness of the world. What about now? This is about our sanctification, another big word, but it's ultimately being made or becoming holy. So it's a process. But as we seek God, there's a process of our sanctification. And we are set apart for good works. Let's go ahead and look at 2 Timothy 2.21. Second Timothy 2.21. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So we will be, as we seek the things above, set our minds on the things above, study the scriptures, seek God, we will be set apart and made for every good work. What are the good works? The good works is what Christ is doing in the world now. We need to be part of that. And so it's not, like I said earlier, a cabin in the wood, woods, you're out doing things right now on the earth, being part of what Christ is doing. 
So in order to do that, we have to put to death the earthly nature. So let's go ahead and look at Colossians 3, verse 5. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. So we're called to put it to death. That means kill it. It's gone. It's, it's not something that we play around with. If we want to look at the severity and how serious God is about it, let's go ahead and look at uh, Matthew 5, going back into uh, Jesus' teachings. It's on 8.58. Following along in the Pew Bible. Okay, so Matthew chapter 5, verses 28. We're actually starting in 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So Jesus is obviously speaking in hyperbole here. He doesn't, he isn't saying that you should go and mutilate yourself. But instead, he's showing the severity of it. This is a serious deal. You may have to take extreme major measures in this situation to put away these things. But even doing those things doesn't necessarily get to the root of the problem. So as we look at this list that Paul has presented in Colossians 3, you're looking at the sins of perverted love. They're personal. And if you look at the list and how the order of it, it works from the action back to the root. So the first one, sexual immorality. That's any sexual evil action. Anything that's outside of what God created, sex within marriage between a man and a woman. So that's the act part. Then you work backwards, you have the impurity, unholy action, evil thought. As Jesus was saying in Matthew 5.28, if you lust in your head, you have committed adultery. So it's the evil affections or evil thought that creates the action. Then you have the passion, evil desire, which comes from a perverted heart. Ultimately, we're all broken inside. Then last on the list, covetousness, and I, which is idolatry. This took me a little while to think about because this is the root of sin right here. Covetousness states, I want what I want when I want it, and I'm not going to let anybody tell me otherwise. So there's a pride factor to that. So if you combine the two, that then creates idolatry because you're basically telling God, I know you think you know what's good for me, but ultimately I know what's best for me, so I'm going to seek after that. This is found in the Garden of Eden. It's 
what created the fall in the beginning. We see it manifest in many different ways. If you're seeking fame, it results in boasting. If you seek after money, it results in stealing. If you want power, careful of tyranny. Dealing with persons results in a sexual sin. So we have to get to this root problem, this covetousness, this pride, and we have to put it to death. I think about the times when we lived in Portland. We had a pretty nice garden, and the kids would help us go through and weed. And you know how kids are. They go through, they find the weed, they rip off the leaves right off the top. I got it. That's great for now. But unfortunately, there's a whole root system down below that, that given enough time, will sprout right back up. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the covetousness, which results in idolatry? Well, ultimately, we battle it with contentment. If we truly believe that Christ is all we need and we're seeking him and putting our mind on him, then that creates contentment, which then does not allow the way to covetousness. But I don't know about you, but my immature self says, why would I want to do that? Let's go ahead and look at verses six and seven. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. So first we see that judgment is coming. Anybody that has kids, it's one of those things, you tell them one time, don't do this. Tell them maybe one more time, don't do this. Ultimately, there's going to be a consequence that comes. There's some patience and there's some grace there. But eventually, there's going to be a judgment and a consequence for not listening, for whatever you're doing. It's also not consistent with your new life. You've taken off the old clothes. You put on your new clothes, your nice Sunday best clothes that you are now going to wear throughout the week. But we have to be aware of the sin that sticks around. It's easy to get sucked into the idea that I don't struggle with those sins. I do have this one. It's kind of like a nice little pet over here. I just kind of hang out with it. It doesn't bother anybody. So I'm just going to have it over here. It may be, for example, a band shirt that you have tucked in the closet that you wear from time to time. Or in my case, might be a pair of old underwear that your wife wants you to get rid of. But ultimately, the idea is that we're going to get down to the root of the problem. We're going to clean that out, take care of that. Because it's not consistent with our new life. So now we're going to look at a, another list by Paul, starting in verse 8. But now, put away all the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. 
So it says put away. That means put away, don't come back to it. Don't entertain it from time to time. Throw the old rags away. Through my study this week, I found out that when people were being baptized, they would take their old clothes and throw them away and they were given new clothes, brand new clothes. So it's, there's something about that. I am a new person, I am a new creation in Christ. And as we look at this list here, it's rooted in wicked hate. It's social, it's relational. It works from backwards. It works from the root to the action. So the first one, anger. There's a bitterness that's always kind of laying under the surface. Something that I came across thinking about, that anger, that bitterness, if you interact with people that aren't saved, they could potentially have that bitterness that's underlying from the standpoint that this life doesn't make sense. There's no baseline. We have a baseline. It's, it's God. If you don't have that baseline, you're kind of going around, maybe have a chip on your shoulder because it just doesn't make sense. Why am I here? So you move from the anger, the bitterness, to the wrath. That's the exploding. All of a sudden, you're driving along, someone cuts you off, boom. Now you're into the wrath, the exploding. But after a little bit, you calm down and you're back to it. Then we have malice, slander. Slander is an interesting one that I would not have normally put much thought to. But when you think about it, when you call someone a big fat jerk or whatever, you're opposing that person's dignity. That dignity is, wait for it, made in the image of God. So when you slander someone, you are essentially saying, God, I know you created this person in your image, but I disagree. I think they're a big fat jerk. I kind of put it in a different perspective for me. Definitely a challenge, something to think about. A little more uh, lighthearted. Mama always said, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Next on the list is obscene talk. Kind of two parts to this. You have the perverted talk, i.e., God created sex. And the way that we talk about it could be obscene. He created it one way, we talk about it in a different way. Could also be abusive talk. Is your speech edifying? Does it lift up? Does it tear down? So that leads right into verse 9. Or, sorry, yes, verse 9. Do not lie to one another. That stems from all the things that we just covered. 
I'm sure Paul was beside himself when he'd think about Christians lying to each other. Why are you lying? There's so many things that Christ has called you to. He's called you to focus on him, to take part in his works. Why are you down here in the mud, the slop? So you put off the old self. The old clothes are gone. And we got to put on the new self. Since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. So we're putting on the new self. We're putting on those everyday church clothes, putting on the best, putting on Christ. Why? For renewed knowledge, and Christ is complete knowledge. So as we seek that, let's go ahead and take a look at the wisdom literature in Proverbs chapter 1. It's on 554. And if you haven't done it, I would throw this out as an option for a Bible study. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs. You can study one chapter a day. But looking at Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 1, the, problem, the Proverbs of Solomon, uh, son of David, king of Israel, for learning wisdom and discipline, for understanding insightful sayings, for receiving prudent instruction in righteousness justice and integrity, for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to a young man. Let a wise person listen and increase learning, and let a discerning person obtain guidance. For the understanding a proverb or a parable, the words of the wise and the riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline." Just as a side note, looking at verse four, for teaching shrewdness in the inexperience, knowledge and discretion to a young man. For you that are young, and I won't point out who, which one's which, but with that, there's wisdom to be found in seeking God. Find him in your young age. And he can be found when you are young. Then going down to verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What's the fear of the Lord? Go ahead and flip over to Proverbs chapter 8. I love when the Bible answers my questions. So starting in chapter 8, verse 6. says, listen, for I speak of noble things, and what my lips say is right. For my mouth tells the truth, and wickedness is detestable to my lips. All the words from my mouth are righteous. None of them are deceptive or perverse. All of them are clear to the perspective and right to those who discover knowledge. Accept my instruction instead of silver, 
and knowledge rather than pure gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and nothing desirable can equal it. I, wisdom, share a home with shrewdness and have knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. I possess good advice and sound wisdom. I have understanding and strength. So what is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. So if the hatred of evil is the fear of the Lord and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, then the hatred of evil is the beginning of knowledge. Do you hate evil? Do you feel the weight of the brokenness of the world? Are you able to separate yourself enough from the culture to identify where it is broken? That's heavy. But Christ is working. There is hope. And once again, he's calling us to take part in that. So we have the full knowledge, like Dallas Willard mentioned, living as Christ were me. So living life as though Christ was me. Then the other part for verse 10 is the image of creator. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 talks about us humans being created in the image of God. We had some discussion about that this last week in our small group. What is the image of God and the fact that we're made in the image of God? Just some things to think about. Personal. There's a relational piece to God. I think that's similar to us. Rational. There's an intelligence, there's a will. Creative. I think of my wife who is, is much more the creative type. But that's not by accident. It's there for a reason. Has dominion. God called us to have dominion over the world. Take care of it. And a moral excellence. There is an objective moral rule to this world that stems from God that is instilled in us. And that requires us to do the right thing even when it's hard. So now as we talk a little bit more about the relational component and looking at verse 11, and what's funny is I was actually thinking about not doing this section because I didn't see exactly how it fit in. But as I studied it more, it, it dawned on me. And I was able to figure out the importance of this. What is Paul getting at? In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. So looking at that list, you have the Greek and the Jew, which is a racial barrier. Look at the circumcised and uncircumcised religious barrier. Barbarian, Scythian, cultural barrier. Slave and free, social barrier. 
Christ is all and in all. So with that being said, this list, the racial barrier, religious barrier, cultural, social, none of those have significance in Christ. We are all one in Christ. So if we are of Christ, there should be no barriers. So I'll challenge you this morning, thinking about Sunday morning services. Are there racial barriers? Hispanic, African-American, white, whatever you want to say. Racial barriers, religious barriers, denominations. Cultural barriers, opposing political views. Social barriers, rich and poor. Are these barriers preventing you from worshiping God together? Is it one of those situations where you look at a church and say, I would worship there if they would do this differently? Now keep in mind there's doctrinal issues, but aside from that, we are called to worship together. If Christ is all then you don't need to satisfy, we don't need to satisfy ourselves, our pride, by dividing ourselves based on racial, religious, cultural, and social barriers. Because ultimately that comes down to a pride issue, like we talked about earlier. There's a pride issue at the root of it. Are you taking part of removing those barriers? Because it's one thing being in the town that we're in, it may not necessarily be the most diverse town. But that, flip that over a little bit and say, are you actively seeking to take down these barriers? Are you going above and beyond? Yes, it's one thing to not allow that to affect your worship, but at the same time, are you actively seeking to remove those barriers? Am I doing that? Is Revelation Church as a whole doing that? Is the church united globally doing that? I've done a, a lot of tests for work, and one of them is strength finders, and one of my key strengths is unity. And sometimes that's to a fault, I'll admit that. But ultimately, my desire is to see the church as a whole more unified because we put on the new self and are actively seeking to remove those barriers, actively involved in what Christ is doing. What is Christ doing in this church? What is Christ doing in this city? What is Christ doing in the U.S., the world? Are we seeking that? Or are we too stuck in the mud the only way we can do that, it's not a self-help type thing. We have to be focused on Christ. We have to allow him to provide that new self that we need, our everyday church clothes. But there's still a battle that is there. So if we look at Galatians 5, on page 1034, Galatians 5, 16 to 18, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. 
For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. <coughs> Excuse me. So there is a daily battle that is raging here. It's the battle between the spirit and our flesh. What we interact with physically affects our relationship there, and our relationship with Christ affects this physical element as well. So if we are looking to put on that new self, then there should be some key markers. So in that same chapter of Galatians, looking at verses 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Do these apply to you? Do they apply more today than they did in the past? Have you put on the new self to its fullest? Have we put to death the things that we talked about today? We can if we seek the things that are above, set our minds on the things that are above. Now in closing, it's easy to turn this into a lesson on works. But remember, this is the process of sanctification. It's the process of becoming holy. We should be crowding our brain with the word of God so much that there isn't time for the desires of the flesh. We need to reflect on the things above. Study your Bible. Sing hymns constantly, even while you're doing the other activities. So next week, we seek to understand the everyday church clothes that, we called the, that we're called to put on. And as Dallas Willard described, living life as though Christ were me. So there is hope. And we'll tap into that a little bit next week. And as we move to the time of communion, for those that are believers, we have a new created self that is inseparably united with Christ because of what he did on the cross. It's what Christ did for us, ultimately. So let's celebrate that together through reflection, communion, and song. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that we can be found in you, that you ultimately have crucified our old self and clothed us in new clothes, Lord God. May we be about your business, be about what you are doing here locally globally, whatever that looks like, Lord. May we seek to be examples of you to those that we interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. May we grow closer in our knowledge and understanding of you 
May we learn to hate the evil and the brokenness of this world. See it like you do. Not as something that's entertaining or something that we may interact with from time to time, but instead see it in its entirety, its brokenness, Lord. That instead what you are and what you have for us, Lord God, through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit is much greater. Give us the desire to seek that more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.